Like as as kids, we barely have this anything in common. Ted he's 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 interviewing you. me. I know, I know, I did. And you're I falling did. for it. I was every falling. Time. I was falling it's for like it. It's a thirty every... minute story. And I'm like, Dana, like he's here. <laughs> he's you don't know anything again. about Ted. Welcome yes, to Suggested Donation. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Welcome to the Art Grind <laughs> Podcast. Thanks for coming on. A fellow podcaster, fellow painter. Yeah. Um, we've been talking a lot. I don't know how much we'll use on this, but... Uh, we should use that whole thing. The we whole thing? the podcast. We're halfway home. <laughs> you're, 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 you're the senior podcaster here, so let's hear Yeah, what's, actually, uh, for those... Of, okay, guys, for those of you who don't know um, Edward's podcast, Suggested Donation is fantastic. I started listening to it after doing this, yeah. and I'm just thinking that they're actually better than us and probably cover the same <laughs> stuff and like, you know. Yeah. So uh, maybe should, maybe everyone should just listen to Suggested Donation instead I think of there's a one. lot of overlap there between are. our podcasts, so, but hopefully there's room for for more than one. Um, well, well, which is why I met a podcast where we actually interview each other. <laughs> the clash of the podcast. That's why that 20-minute tangent has to go in the uh, this one. Um, yeah, yeah, and, and Edward, I actually... I just flipped Ted, it on you. Yeah, so, we're, we're, we're actually just going to do, because you're the, you know, because you've been doing it for longer and you know what you're doing better. Can I just ju- interview you guys? Yeah, well, we're actually just going to do everything you say. <laughs> Ted, walk us through. Where did you, How do you make grow up? How, what, what was your... So I grew up like three blocks from where we are right now on the Upper East Side, side. Manhattan. Yeah, where did you grow up? I grew up in Georgia. In oh, Atlanta. Georgia. Uh huh. The state, not the country. How did you wind up on the Upper East Side of all places? <sighs> Series of unfortunate events. <laughs> um. a, a, a meandering course of bad decisions led me here. <laughs> It's actually truer than I'd like to admit. <laughs> anyway. One of them being a host on this podcast. <laughs> More bad decisions. Are you happy on the Upper East Side? You are an interviewer. <laughs> Back to you. We got a Fire Island story to get to. <laughs> so uh, you grew up around here. I did. Did you grow, have yeah. siblings or? Older sister. Like uh, How much older was she then? Same, like five or six years. Oh, really? Yeah. No so you were you were sort of the younger like goofball brother. Are is you that guys what it are was? you guys are all younger siblings? I feel like, like uh, we could never truly connect. I, I'm I'm an older sibling, uh-huh. and I'm in a family of like you know my mom, my sister, and my dad are all younger younger ones. And sometimes they'll just all start talking about what it's like growing up with an older sibling. And I was like, you guys just don't understand how tough it was to be. It is you know? way hard. I mean, I've got two kids and we are so much harder on the older kid like, yeah it's <laughs> the older kid it's all catches like, hell it's that's like the, totally exp- is, 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 is that the I, experimental kid and then by and then like eventually you're like yeah i don't you, know you're just relaxed and you're like willing to let stuff <laughs> Honest go to God, and, i hardly know my parents to this day i was raised by my siblings <laughs> they were just sort of around and they were sort of older and weirder and then it was all just my <laughs> well that's i mean if you're gonna have multiple kids you might as well be able to lean on them for like some parenting when sure. you're not feeling it, you know? Me being the youngest of four, it was like... Well, four is a lot. Yeah. That, that. But it, so you had a, an older sister who was mean. Was there Surster. any lessons Did you say surfster? 
Please, please do not make fun of me. There's someone listening to this right now who is beaming. You make fun of me for that. Who's who's beaming right now? We're not going to say, but someone is overjoyed that you made fun of me for saying that word that way. Well, because we were just talking about different pronunciations of flow rider. So, uh, did you learn anything growing up with her? Girls are awful, right? No, I mean, I don't feel like I learned that, but I I, I always, like, wanted to hang out with her and couldn't. Like, it just, she wasn't that into it. Uh, Okay. Did it kind of of get better? So, me and my sister, like, were, I mean... Well, I don't want to mischaracterize it. My sister wasn't super mean. It was just, she was old enough that, like, there wasn't a whole lot of common ground. And then, then, um, so out at Fire Island, which is where we spend the summers, I think... Probably when she was about 15, maybe a little bit younger, she was allowed to just be out like we were out there together by ourselves Mm -hmm. and she was in charge. And I think she didn't want the parenting to be outsourced to her. Mm -hmm. So, you know, that maybe like was inconvenient like you're a 15 year old girl and you've got like the your 10 year old yeah the last thing you want right. as a 15 year old girl sure. is like your right. nine year old brother <laughs> right so i mean it, like she wasn't particularly mean she just was probably like annoyed with me and and you know so there was that and were you always like an artistic kid yeah, totally. Yeah? Like, I was alone. You, you, you were, like, like, the class doodler? <laughs> I was the class doodler, but I was also, like, I, I have, like, really bad light sensitivity. So, like, you know, on sunny days, I would get headaches, and, like, I just wanted to be inside drawing all the time. Wait, wait a second. Basically, basically but you, like a vampire, right? Huh? Yeah, but yeah. You, you do planar paintings of the like ocean. The beaches. <laughs> I know. Yeah. I try to do work? it on like cloudy, rainy days. That's my favorite time to paint on the beach. Like I feel like I could open my eyes all the way on a rainy day. Hmm. And I, I'm happy to, you know, be out there in the rain and get wet. But I, I just, that's like my perfect day. So, how do you, how do you make those? Are they like, do you do seascape studies and then take them into the studio and it's like imagination plus that or? It's totally, yeah, it's, I mean, it's mostly imagination, but uh-huh. I guess, so I look back recently and the very first time that I tried to paint a studio landscape was, uh, 12 years ago. So for the past 12 years, basically, I've been, uh, like as much time as I can get, I'm just out on the beach and I'm either taking notes So just watching wave after wave and trying to, like, dissect the anatomy of the brain. Like, just trying to understand it. Okay. Or, um, you know, doing little, like, oil paintings, uh, drawings, watercolors. I'm just using whatever medium I can to try and study. I've I've developed, like, certain mediums that I find are better for working really quickly to to get certain things down. Because, obviously, everything is, is... moving and so it's more about pattern recognition maybe than it is like painting what you see right for sure yeah or it's, it's like a, you know dissecting the anatomy which well, is how like most, all the renaissance artists yeah, so Marshall and I were just talking about your paintings well in the 10 minutes of preparation that we did for, <laughs> for interviewing you and it's wait just, who is this guy this was at subway by the way we're like it was coming and <laughs> <laughs> <Ed>, ted <laughs> Fred? Forget it. Start calling me Ned. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, all right. So, so Nedward, um, over here. Um, 
but we're kind of talking about how hard it is to just capture, you know, like a wave is such a kind of like, like image in motion. And the fact that you're trying to pay, like, like, what's it like trying to catch something that's constantly moving? Like I mean, my background, so I went to film school and was studying animation and my background is animation. And oh, so I really? studied. Where was this at? Uh, Tish, NYU film school. Okay. So that's, that's where I went. Uh, and then I came out and, um, uh, I did animation for, for a while. Um, and didn't you have a company? I did. Yeah. It was, um, I, I started out at Vassar college Mm -hmm. and then, uh, spent two years there. I was like having fun, but I felt like this pressure, I knew how much college cost and my parents were paying for it. And I felt like I needed to like get something out of it like a vocational school like the liberal arts thing at the time i wish i had embraced it but i i just like at the time it just didn't make sense to me that like you spend four years studying then you go to grad school and spend more money studying something that you're actually maybe going to use then you go get an internship for a year that you don't Mm -hmm. get paid for so like all of that just seemed like ridiculously like something i couldn't afford like i didn't feel like i had that kind of money well it still seems sort of absurd like when you're i mean i hate to say it but kind of at your worst in terms of age you go to this really intense learning experience for like four years and then it's over and it's almost like the our perception is learning stops at that point no i don't think so no but i think it just begins but i i think that the thing about college the thing that i'll tell my kids is that it's it's about learning about yourself and it's like learning about life learning about what you value like how friends like how how you derive meaning from like just spending time with friends the Uh things you choose to do like like, yeah so much of call like specifically college was about having these like late night conversations about the meaning of life yes yes which i don't do that you know i I don't regret a single second i spent mistakes yeah yeah, making making bad decisions but it's like that's what it's about that's exactly what i'm saying i think to what my earlier point was that should get out of your system at that point and then ever totally get out of the system (laughs) well for sure i don't know yeah i I miss it it's like like i feel like my life right now well you end up looking like me if it never gets out of your system (laughs) so i don't think it's the best isn't painting the continuation of that constantly making mistakes and you know for sure it is yeah yeah, but then like the stakes get high. Like, like I, like, I, I, I don't know. So I'm a big believer in failure, which I feel like I shouldn't go into because I've done it a few times, like on this podcast. But I feel like failed on the podcast um, or oh, gone I, fa- into oh, I failed, failed on this podcast. <laughs> talked about failing, the, uh, but but I feel like a lot of like kind of your early twenties, the whole point is like learning how to fail or like learning how to fall and then like kind of like put some band aids on and like well, why is do the it next the time thing? that you experience with that when you're throwing so many resources at a condensed time like i feel like education should just we it it should just be a lifetime of learning that isn't this condensed four-year period when you're 18 but i think it is i mean but i think for you you, but not any of us right like we're still like every day I, i teach a lot and every day i go to teach i'm pretty sure i'm learning a lot more than the people i'm teaching Oh, for sure. But you're, you're like, you're, you live a charmed life. 
You know what I'm saying? <laughs> I mean, listen to listen to what we talk it about. Fire Island, Upper East Side, yeah, 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 NYU. Great kids. Like this is not charmed. What? Do you feel like your life is charmed? Does <laughs> anybody ever feel like their life is charmed? I feel like unequivocally, like your life has been charmed. Like I mean, maybe, you're not going to get like, any debate. Like, so sometimes I do, just because when I'm like, all right, well, everyone is healthy, no one is dying, no one's deathly sick. It's got to be, you know, like, that that I state is not going to last forever. But then I also there's so many just day to day things Look, like, you know, just but is is also is not dying like is that the baseline like is that the, I mean, like, to, is that what we're shooting for? I mean, here? I don't know. It's what I, like, we're alive. <laughs> what the fuck. Is I, that know, all I, I don't know. Being alive, but, but being alive is actually pretty great. I agree. Uh, I agree. Uh, <laughs> and, um, no, for sure. Uh, so but, Ted, what, what about you? What sort of huge failures have you had in your life? That you think <laughs> yeah, let's get it. Let's get into the failures differently. But I mean, I don't like any painting you do. Like I do. Like at some point, I think it's a failure. And and but that's low some stakes part failure. Of it. Let's talk about life failures. No, I mean that's high stakes failure. Like <laughs> your life is defined, or like your legacy is defined by your work. Hmm. And the paintings that you do, like you have a limited number of paintings, limited num- amount of time. And the right, stakes are super high. Legacy. What? You'll be dead for that legacy. No, you won't. You'll you'll be alive to look back at the paintings you made and wonder if you like squandered your life, if you worked as hard as you could possibly work, if you could have done better, if you could have done more. Like, but but, we'll but, never... but but like when we're really old, do you think do you think we're going to be thinking like I wish I did more work or like I wish I had more meaning. You know, like there'll be some things we regret. Well, it's not, yeah, it's not necessarily more work, but yeah. it's the, the quality of the work or the, the direction, you know, maybe you went in a direction. I mean, like painting the ocean is something that just happened. Yeah. I didn't yeah. seek to, it wasn't a conscious decision. Because, it's just. So I know, I actually know what I'll regret when I'm 90, like as far as just like painting stuff goes. Like I already be- know that. What? And yet I'm not, yet I seem to be like having a hard time. There is, but I'm having a hard, but, but so I have years. these like, I have these like sketchbooks that I'm like really like kind of obsessive about. Uh-huh. And whenever I can't, like, you know, whenever I can find the time, like that's, that's what I, you know, it's totally non-lucrative. I do it only for myself. I, you know. But these are what kind, you're posting on Instagram, right? I, I do. That's, yeah. that's the only place they ever go. They're Other amazing. Than that, the they, End gorgeous. up in like a shelf, you know, like that, that no one ever sees them in. But I think I'll wish I had like spent more time on those and less time making stuff, like making other more finished stuff, because that's like where, like, like, like that's where like kind of my version of like a soul or whatever it is, if it can be in a physical object, it's probably not in my paintings. It's, it's in those things. And those are the ones that are like the hardest to find, especially like post kids. It's so hard to justify just doing it entirely for it's yourself. Or like yeah, It doesn't make money. It doesn't get seen yeah. really like, uh, you know, um, like it is a little self-indulgent, but like, is that, but I, I already know that that's kind of the most meaningful thing I do. It, it's the closest to art. Maybe you can get a I, grant to do them. Um, maybe. maybe I mean, know. I think that's something that we all have to think about a lot is like there have to be ways to like follow your passion without having to also sell off the things that you're making I if mean, they're like, not marketable. Yeah. I mean, how so do like, you how do you do it? Uh, what, what what's your strategy? I, I like everything. I, I'll sell anything, but there are a few paintings that I just am waiting to do because I'm waiting to figure out how I'm going to be able to afford to spend, you know, six months or a year on something that like I have no intention of selling. I wouldn't I wouldn't sell it. Wow. Okay. And, so you're teaching right now and you're also hosting the podcast. Where are you teaching? 
So I teach at the Grand Central Atelier, which is in Long Island City. Oh, that's right. It's actually yeah. right next they to moved. it, and they're right next to where I live. Oh, uh, really? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. You should come by. Um, I actually like. I think I'm like intimidated to come by because it's, it's all of these people I think of as like just like technically they're like so masterful and. Oh, you should come. I'm, like, not I'll be. Good. I'm there usually. I, I, on a kind of sabbatical to work on this giant painting, but uh, I'm there usually on Wednesdays, and I would love to show you around and hang out. And, and I, I would actually love to love to check it out. Uh, um, okay, I, I'll, I'll totally, I'll, I'll totally take. No, it's my kind of play. Like I think it's like had it, if I had known about it when I went to the academy, I probably would have gone there because I'm not like. Like, I'm so dorky about, like, just technical stuff. Like, I would get a kick out of, like, six months of just doing casts. <laughs> uh, <laughs> it's, I mean, it's intense. I think I also teach at, uh, at Columbia. Uh, what do you teach there? Drawing. Cast drawing. Oh, really? At Columbia? Yeah, there at you Columbia. Go. Do, do you know Ephraim? Ephraim, no. Rubenstein, he's a, he teaches painting there. I don't know any of the other faculty. Okay. Um, Maybe a couple people. I know a couple people, but, uh, I don't like, I'm an adjunct. I go in, I teach my class. I've been doing it for a long time, but I go in and I teach that one class. Uh, it's spring semester. So just once a year. Okay. I can't and believe Columbia even have a cast drawing class. It's kind of amazing. I mean, I, I, I know I'm such an outlier to what's going on there. There are a million ways to paint, a million ways to draw, a million ways to see. I'm going to offer you just one way that has been interesting to me. And if it's interesting to you, that's great. If not, you will spend a semester and you'll get this cast drawing that you've worked really hard on. And it'll be pretty amazing no matter what. But uh, so you'll have that either way. But maybe just maybe like this will be something you're into. And even if it's not something you're into, maybe you'll, you know, next time you go on vacation somewhere and you bring a sketchbook you'll have a different way of like interacting with your experience Mm -hmm. and that, you know, throughout the semester kind of forget certain things, but I think that that idea kind of sticks with them. Um, Do do you like teaching by the way? I love it. Yeah. I mean, I, I think I spent, uh, I don't know, four or five years in my studio just painting and doing shows before I started teaching at all. I just felt like I, I I felt like I should put on a suit to go to like Pathmark to do grocery shopping because that was like the extent of me getting out into the world and like my social interaction was with the cashier and I was still doing like the self checkouts. So it was like no interaction with anybody and and it yeah, like no, no no I feel like we need we need people like well and you need people challenging like if if you have an idea and you're you're talking about like here's the way that I'd like to approach or I'd like you to try approaching, you know, drawing or painting and people challenge that, like they raise questions that maybe you didn't think of and, and, and you get to work with amazing people. Yeah. I mean, the students and, and a lot of them now are my community. They're, you know, friends who are out there making like amazing art. Uh, you paint the ocean. So you, not only do you not interact with, with anyone, you know, what, when you're painting in the studio and you're also not interacting with anyone while you're on the beach. That's so, not totally true. Oh, okay. But, uh, I, I kind of see you. Yes. <laughs> I mean, I do like my favorite time on the beach is like October, November, like overcast days. Nobody's on the beach at that. At do that people time come year. and talk to you? And you know, when pe- people are painting uh, figurative uh, or figures, 
there is this critique going back and forth. You could talk about, you know, certain ways that elbows should be and whatnot. But when you're painting something as fluid, you know, or where the subject matter is a little bit more abstract, uh, what's a conversation like? Or what's a, do you have critiques with people? Or you mean like people coming up and critiquing my, there was one guy while you're painting and maybe in the that studio. Happens. There was one guy. He was a guy I, I knew. We just actually used to call him Mr. Soprano. Okay. He wasn't, but I mean, kind of, <laughs> maybe he was. He probably was. Um, and he used to walk his dog on the beach and I would get up, uh, at the time I was painting sunrise. Like I would just, that's, that was, uh, usually a good time for me to paint. Nice. Uh, and so I was painting at sunrise and he, came he's walking his dog he walks by and he's hey how you doing you know <laughs> and uh he took a look at my painting he's like what are you painting and i was like the ocean and i'm like halfway <laughs> done and i'm like not a good sign it's like either i'm failing or and he like <laughs> gets in like, front of me and like looks me in the eye and then shakes his head and walks off. And I was like, what the hell was that? Holy cow, Mr. Soprano hates my painting. And he like walked off, walked, you know, way down the beach with his dog. Then he came back and he goes, you still painting the ocean? I said, yeah. And he looks and then he looks at me again and he's like, I don't get it. And I was like, and I have this, this easel. It's like a, almost like a laptop where like the keyboard is my palette and then the screen is, is where my painting is. He'd yeah. been looking at the palette. That's what he thought the painting oh, was. He was just oh, staring at the palette. He was oh, like, that's Oh, holy shit. No, that's really good. <laughs> Mr. Soprano loves your painting. He turned out to, oh, to so love he, it. But he doesn't like your palette much. <laughs> he didn't like, yeah. It's actually worse. Uh, some people this past summer, my palette, I hadn't cleaned it off for a while. It was like caked up with paint and people were coming by and like, Oh, wow, that looks amazing. The palette is so cool. Like, the painting's good. The palette's like, wow. Oh God, you that's... should have been in this paint, palette painting shows. It's like the only things, the only things that I've, that anyone ever wants me to curate anymore. The, oh, the painting. It's like different versions of the palette painting show. Yeah. So, um, so I did one and I was like, oh, that's cool. And then like, it turns out that that's the only catchy idea I've ever had for a show. And every time I propose anything to any gallery now, they're like, well, that's, that's, that's all right. That's, that's a reasonable idea. N- not really for me, but how about that palette painting show again? <laughs> Where was, there's somewhere I saw a Soroya painting on a palette. Was that maybe at the Hispanic Society? Um, I feel like someone sent me a picture of that and it was. I saw that in person somewhere. I can't remember where. Maybe it's in Madrid at, at his house. Have you, have you read that, um, no, uh, <laughs> you're talking about reading. No, I'm just the, the the talking about your waves, like Susan Sontag writing about photography. Did you read any of that? And how it's like because your your waves. It's an interesting thing. She talked about the danger of photography taking things out of context and just being kind of disjointed, and how it's, an image is no longer about mankind. It's about a specific man, or in your case, like a wave. You're almost inventing these waves that aren't any specific wave that ever existed, right? So it's like kind but, of but, in but, between but, but, but observational like imagination. Wave. Like I feel like he looks at so many waves that it's got you know whatever he's doing. Like, but it couldn't be a thing that actually exists. There's something fascinating about it. Is what I'm getting to. Like they couldn't. It, it's not a split second. It's not a photo. It's like right, something yeah. you've observed. So it like there's something really profound about that. 
that's, I mean, that's my hope. Like, that's the reason that I'm not painting from photographs is like, if I were painting from photographs, I'd be painting a specific way where I could like Photoshop together, like, but whatever it is, it would be something that exists. Uh huh. And my paintings are something that never existed, never will exist, and probably never could exist. Yeah. Mm. But ideally are convincing you that they're like, they still have the maybe convey something of the experience of... It's like your God creating your own waves. <laughs> They're um, dead so, waves. So, so, by the way, so I, I knew your paintings, like, way before I knew your, like, your, your Before podcast. you knew what his name was? I still don't. Uh, but I think it's Ned, right? <laughs> um, but, 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 yeah, um, I mean, I started listening to the podcast as research for this podcast, but your paintings I kind of knew for a while. And in before we started corresponding, I was completely convinced that your entire life is just like hanging out on the beach i imagined you as like a surfer hey like on a the lot be- of it is on the beach i spend a lot yeah. of time on the beach uh, but you also have this other you know you teach you have kids like you have all these like actually re- like actual responsibilities so, um <laughs> like in my head you were like this careless like maybe california guy who's just out in the beach like with a surfboard and a, a set of paint and i was so kind of like <laughs> jealous <laughs> that's so funny because i when we first corresponded i was so jealous of like you traveling around and with your sketchbook just like i'm drawing in rome today and today it's in paris <laughs> you're like those were saved up i'm actually like you know chasing toddlers yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> and talking about trucks <laughs> yeah it's pretty amazing how instagram is so misleading yeah, we, we both i mean social media wise we probably both do the same thing where it's like it's about art you don't want your kids there you don't want like any of the rest of your life on social media because it's just a you know so like in my case there's almost a different person who lives on instagram right. and like makes all this like cool stuff and travels a lot and then there's like my real life which has like nothing to do with that person <laughs> it's so funny though because like i get slightly resentful when i look at excuse me other people's social media and i feel like their lives are so much better than mine and i like start to like hate everything and and then like the idea that somebody might possibly look at my page and it feel like it's curated to present this like carefree hey i'm at the beach um. again <laughs> like it like to me, like when I post things, like it never even occurs to me that I'm curating my life in like a desirable way. It's just, um, but it's 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 a part of it's the art part of your life, and yeah, um, yeah. Like in my case, like what goes on social media is like the art part of my life, yeah. and but like right at least at this point with like small children around or whatever, the art part of my life is actually pretty limited, <laughs> uh, like like to like a few hours a day. <laughs> so what what is your regular day like or week like? I mean, lately, because I've been just working on this big painting, it's mm-hmm. all painted. Like, my my wife is, like, the greatest person in the world. And ideally, like, when you guys are both tag-teaming with kids, you'll, you'll feel the same way that, like, my wife has a, a job where she travels a lot. And she's she's been gone, you know, over the past, I don't know, five or six years, she's been, you know, gone a lot. And what does I'm, she do? She runs a philanthropic program. Oh, cool. So it's it's um, devoted to like education. She she ran a program for years called Ten Thousand Women, uh, which was an international program that provided uh, business education to women who ran small businesses in developing countries. 
that's uh, super interesting. And so she was like, yeah. How long is this painting going to take you? Well, not much longer because the show's uh, in October. So it'll take to October. And <laughs> yeah, I mean, well, I, I got to have, I, I have like a bad habit. I don't know if you guys ever heard do this, but uh, like uh, I use Gamvar because, you know, who can wait six months to finish uh-huh. painting? And yeah. I always put it on too soon and wind up like glazing like ivory black across the whole painting. So I'm going to give myself two weeks for the painting dry before I... Uh, Before you can fire it? Yeah. Wait, Uh, explain the ivory black glazing? What do you mean? Well, ivory black is a slow dryer. Yeah, it's a slow dryer, so basically it gets dissolved by, like, you know, like if if you do it too soon, then you just end up, like, smearing. So it's dry to the top. It, it, like, looks like it's dry, yeah. And it's super sunken in, and so then you put the, like, if you're using a white brush and you put the gamvar on, all of a sudden the bristles are, like, black, and you're like, oh, fuck. So where is this show happening? Uh, Cavalier. Cavalier, okay. Galleries, which uh, they have a location. Uh, it's like a storefront location on 57th and 5th. Oh, nice. Okay. Um, all right, all which right. Which I guess most of the galleries are getting kind of kicked out of those buildings. I heard the Bernarducci yeah. Uh, yeah. thing. but uh, The Billionaire's Row or right, whatever the hell but, they're talking uh, about. Yeah. yeah. We're oh. just talking to someone to, to, to kind of to my gallery um, gallery lady earlier today and she said that she started out like as an intern in one of those galleries and that was like the happening place to be that like you know back back in the day yeah. and it's then probably not super happening now that area no no but <laughs> I think that uh like storefront uh, but, but some, there, it's going to be amazing. It's got like a storefront there is going to be spectacular. And if your gallery survived like this long, with everyone, you know, like with so many of them getting like kicked out or closing down, they've or whatever, they've actually been expanding. So they've, they've, two spaces got, they've the got to know what they, they've got to be really good, and they've got to know what they're doing. Um, yeah, one hopes. <laughs> uh, anyway, so yeah, the show will be there, uh, and hopefully, I'll I'll have this big painting done done in time. I guess you'll be sad to let it see it go away if somebody buys it, but also not. I don't think I don't have that problem. Okay. Like I'm never. There was one painting that I kept in my studio for, um, I think it was about ten years, and I recently sold it, and I, I I just wasn't even showing it. I was. It was one of those things. Like occasionally you do something, maybe just a little bit beyond where you feel like you are, and then you spend a while trying to figure it out. Like what did I do right there? Like what what worked? And I spent years looking at that painting, and finally. I felt ready to, so there was a show at um, Robert Simon uh, Fine Art, and Robert Simon was actually on our podcast. Um, he was the guy who found that Leonardo da Vinci painting. And he's an old master dealer. Oh, wow. Amazing, okay. amazing, like, best guy in the art world. He is, like, the most down-to-earth, like, great, ridiculously smart, like, knows every, like, third fourth fifth sixth tier like minor renaissance master like any painter you know old master painter he knows Hmm. um and he knows everything about them anyway uh so he had a show at his gallery and i wanted to put something in that felt like substantial and there was this painting that had been sitting in my studio for years and i felt like that's a painting i could i could give to to robert so i did and it sold uh, and so now it's, it's so what have, did you learn anything from it from keeping it? Yeah, for that long? I did. I did. I mean, I, I learned tons from it, but I also think eventually like the best thing in the world as an artist is to like clear everything out of your, like get rid of, if you can sell everything you do, 
I think that's the best thing because you keep moving forward. Yeah. And, you know, if things linger, I think you kind of dwell on them. And sometimes that's a good thing. But I think often you can just stagnate. And I, I definitely feel like, I don't know, for me, and obviously everybody's different, but for me, I, I never feel, the only regret I ever feel selling a painting is just, I always feel like it's 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 not good enough. It's not, you know, like I, I just, I feel some sense of failure with every painting. I think that's uh, kind of normal for painters. So do you, do you sometimes feel that um, you spend way too much time on the painting and you're conceptually way ahead already in your mind? Like you're already thinking about the next thing. Yeah, I think I'm pretty dumb that way. Like, okay. I think I can just like stay on task on one thing for for a long time, and and actually find new things in that. So you know, like if I'm painting an ocean for you know months and months, one painting, like so many ideas about that painting and about what I'm doing and about the history of painters who have painted the ocean and the our like human history and relationship with the water and with the coast and with the ocean like it's so fascinating and and like i can just dwell on on so many different kind of facets of what i'm doing that like it just it never seems to you know I, I feel like I've never got, I mean, I, I don't really paint outside, but I draw outside all the time. And I feel like I just never get tired of being outside making something. Like in, like, like in my, my studio, which is like my couch, the part of the couch <laughs> that doesn't have toys on, on it. Um, you know, um, like, like I have moments where I can get restless or like I, finish a series and for me a series is like a year and a half or so and then i'm like god i just never want to look at another tree again uh and then in like a month i do but but like in the studio i've gotten <laughs> like rest- okay birches birches yeah, I, like I've, I've gotten restless before but i've never like gotten tired of just being outside somewhere with a sketchbook yeah then. yeah i mean it's that like interaction yeah, with yeah, yeah, nature we're, and we're, you're it, always it, surprised like i mean i been painting the ocean like just going there and painting for over a decade just studying like the ocean and every day that i go out i i this summer in july i was there every single day in july painting on the beach every single day at least minimum of one painting or drawing but often three paintings a day and every one, there's something surprising. There's something new. Well, and, and, every, something... and every day something happy, even if it's something that like, even if you're in the same spot, like, I don't know, you see a seal or like the clouds do something that you've never seen happen. <laughs> like, 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 it's just being, and I feel like it is because like as painters, we're also like, we're like in our head and in the studio and not talking to people so much that I feel like the reason we get such a kick out of it is just being like outdoors. We're like, anything, like anything, <laughs> yeah. kind of anything could happen. Like Mr. Yeah. You know, Mr. These Soprano. shut-ins that finally like yeah, get yeah, let yeah, out yeah. of our cages. Yeah, Mr. Soprano could walk by. Right. But... You get to see a human. Yeah, um, yeah. Like I feel like I have a lot of like random conversations draw, you know, drawing. Yeah, and you know, and too many of them are. Oh, my my aunt paints. It's like, oh, that's great. <laughs> I, I love my cousin draws Spider Man real good. <laughs> yeah, but I, I've also met like a lot of like really cool people that way, and I'm sure you guys have too. 
where like you know you don't regret having spent like 20 minutes talking to them yeah um, there are definitely plenty of conversations i, 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 I also, wish i could get the 20 minutes I also, back. yeah yeah i also <laughs> no, I, I actually i i really like people in general and probably <laughs> don't interact with enough adult ones except maybe here on this podcast <laughs> so, so for me a 20 a 20 minute conversation about someone's aunt who draws spider-man it would be great <laughs> Where did you learn to paint then? If you were at NYU for film school, then what did you do so after that? I After NYU, actually, Tony and I, um, we met in a train tunnel doing graffiti. That's right. I <laughs> listened then... to that episode. It was so entertaining. <laughs> so good. Well, in, well actually, okay. Oh, well, um, yeah. Well, okay. I feel like so rather like I feel like for all 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 of you who should be listening to suggested donation, but are instead <laughs> listening to art grind, can you uh, can you talk about your train tunnel uh, graffiti days? I mean, I so uh, I guess I started. Yeah, How did you start doing graffiti for one? Well, so I had been doing graffiti for a while, and uh, I guess I, I I had become kind of disillusioned with art, and I didn't feel like there was. Because I had been, like, so discouraged from... Poorly educated, just in that system, like, it wasn't... I mean, I'm sure it's great for certain people, but it just, it like, they weren't encouraging me to do what I wanted. But not only that, they were discouraging me from doing what I wanted. And I uh-huh. found, felt like, okay, this isn't, this isn't going to work. So, um, around the same time, or, you know, simultaneously, as I was, like, taking those classes, I was also, you know, scrawling my name in places. And then... Uh, kind of getting better feedback from like the graffiti people I, I knew and they were like oh man that's awesome and huh. so I started to get into it and plus like I was at the right age where like the thrill of you know all the shit that happens uh-huh. was you know just the right thing and I, I think I was like just the right degree of crazy at that time to like just be be comfortable living with the risks okay um and and so I was I was doing a lot mostly in the Bronx. Oh uh, wow! And I had a like a crew that I was painting with there, and uh, and, and it was I mean I think, and I still to this day like I'm very committed to like very academic art, and I like love nothing more than like beautiful gem like paintings of trees that I could hold in my hand like that to me that speaks to me more than anything else. But I still love the graffiti world, and mm-hmm. I, I love everything about it. Like, uh, there's a whole culture that exists, and when you're in it, of great painters too. Like, technically. there are a lot of really good artists uh-huh. there, and and you know, like the the first wave of graffiti artists really were like people who weren't trained, but who had a need, desire to express something, and they got you know, at that time, and and I missed this, but they got, like, the subway system as their canvas, and it carried them all through the boroughs. And it was, I mean, to see, to paint something, and I, I can't even imagine, and then, like, a whole car, and see it run from Bronx to Manhattan to, yeah. to Queens or to Brooklyn, like, that's got to be, like, the greatest, I mean, that's like having your painting go to the metropolitan or something or or be in the biennial and have people like and then the feedback that you get like that you could 
hop on that same train and go to Brooklyn and everybody knows who you are. Uh-huh. Or everybody actually, that matters knows yeah, who you are. Yeah, actually, sure. now they, they're putting all these advertisements on the train. It'd be so awesome if you could have your whole painting on those trains legally. There was a thing. Banksy had this whole like defense of graffiti that like it because somebody owns something, like let's say a side of a building, mm. that doesn't give them the right to put an advertisement on the side of that building that's going to infiltrate your thoughts when you're walking past that building and get into your head. Mm-hmm. Like, why does somebody owning a building give them the right to infiltrate your mind, your thoughts? Why is that any more valid than me just going up there and painting that that wall? That is so I think it's a pretty convincing. Yeah. And there's life. actually more, way more uh, public art, I think, on the West Coast with all these beautiful murals than there are in New York. Just there's kind of there's crazy. a lot in New York too. Do you remember it's, Five Five Points? Yeah, of yeah. Course, they, sure. We used to we worked in there for like <laughs> seven or eight years. Yeah, after one? they tore. Yeah, then they well, tore it down. Before they tore it down. Oh, yeah. 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 But, but I mean, that was a great spot. There were there yeah, were tons of spaces spot. like that, though. I mean, the the city like those spots are going away, but still, like I mean, I painted uh, a lot along uh, the Deegan, so along eighty seven, and then the along the Amtrak line. Uh, going through the Bronx, there are okay. all these walls. And to me, like, my outlook on it is, like, if there's a building or something that was designed with some thought, I don't want to deface it. Like, that that doesn't, I think that's wrong. But if there's something that, like, an engineer didn't design but just built and it's maybe safe and not going to fall, but also, like just there's no thought put into the aesthetics then i'm improving on it if i go and paint it <laughs> okay it. that's kind of cool that's your that was, like code of conduct yeah yeah so like you know along amtrak it's like concrete walls just to make sure that like rocks don't cave in on the tracks and why not paint that and, and then i did a lot of handball courts which you know mostly were legal or kind of you you could you could do them without like even if the cops rolled past, you weren't getting arrested. And how, how old were you? What ages was this? I guess towards the end of high school, I was really frustrated with... I had studied at the Art Students League probably when I was like 13, 14. Um, and then around 16 or 17, I guess, I don't know, I stopped. When would that have been? When were you at the League? Uh, I studied with Peter Cox. Do you know who he is? He was oh, in the yeah. That's his painting. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Behind that paint box, I got a bunch of his. He's like... That's he's a like, woman's head? Uh-huh. Oh, that's awesome. He's one of the greatest painters who are ever. He was scary as shit when I was a little kid. He was uh-huh. a skinhead. Yeah. Really? So no, he had no like doubt. racers and uh, like Doc Martens, the like whole... He was a total... Well, actually... And he like had a really intense look. Yeah, because yeah. he was... This is him in this painting. It's an illustration he's done. But this is what he looked like when you were in school with him. That's that dude right there. He didn't have a mohawk. He, he, he had a shaved head, but yeah, yeah, for sure. He was a badass. He's yeah. A total I'm sure he's still a badass. Actually, I saw him years ago. You know, maybe like five years ago or something. Well, he, he passed away. When did he pass away? Like last year. Oh, no. Yeah. He That's was teaching at the league, there. back at the league, and then he passed away. And we, we actually talk about him a lot on this podcast because... He was young, though. Why? 
Well, he had he had had a few strokes and things. Uh-huh. By the time I studied with him, he was a lot more uh, laid back. He was not scary. He was like a sweet older guy who had some health. Issues. You know, he was a sweet yeah. guy when I was. He yeah. just looked scary and he was intimidating. Oh, oh. But like, he was super nice. And I have to say, I studied with you know a few different people at the league, and his class was the one where I actually felt like I wasn't totally learning exactly what i wanted but uh-huh. it was i learned a lot there and yeah. and i think of my kind of teenage life like that's where i did probably the the work that i i felt most proud of uh-huh um and i, I definitely like he seemed like the kind of person that you might as a kid want to like emulate you want might want to be like grow yeah. up and be like that guy well, you want to yeah. be yeah yeah, like yeah because you you kind of want to be hardcore right yeah. like as a, <laughs> yeah. as a kid or just oh, like, like be you, i mean i was such a twerpy little kid so i just like the did idea you say of, twerpy yeah i said twerpy uh, <laughs> that's why your sister didn't want to hang out uh, with you yeah, <laughs> uh, i mean she could also kick my ass <laughs> uh so ned 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 over here rode in on a motorcycle. Doesn't look twerpy at all. I'm trying yeah. to, yeah, I'm trying to. Badass now. <laughs> Thank you. If I said that, I'd sound like I was bragging. Um, but, uh, so anyway, uh, I had, I had studied at the league a little bit, but my, in, in school, like all our classes were trying to like drive me away from that kind of old mastery thing that I was uh-huh. interested in. And I was like for the school magazine, I'd be like, drawing these weird like male torsos because i was looking at michelangelo and like i didn't know why i liked it but i just i thought that those things were amazing and i was like trying to find black chalk so i could you know do those kinds of drawings and um and then i'd get into art class and they'd be like trying to make me do abstract stuff or Uh you know and i i hated it yeah and i just like I would sit there and try and draw things that I wanted to draw and I would always get like discouraged or, and it was like my worst, I would get, I was pretty obedient, like good, well-behaved kid. And art classes were like the bad grade that I would get. And I would get like kicked out of class for like huh. fighting with the te- I actually like pushed a teacher once right. I got like kicked out. Wow. Um, wow. And Whoa. I was just like super like, what, what was it over? A- a- academic art, you, art versus conceptual yeah. behavior, yeah, behavior like, problems. <laughs> Don't try and make an academic artist. But I, so I, I, I just, it was that. I was like, I'm trying to express something and I'm trying to do something that has meaning for me. And this, you know, somebody's telling me, you know, that's, that's not, you don't want to do that. Like do that. And mm. I just, I found it incredibly frustrating. So then ultimately like, uh, because I was the kid who was doodling all the time, I had friends who were doing graffiti and they saw my doodles and were like, Hey, you should do what we're doing. And, and, and graffiti is kind of a place where it's okay to have skill, right? It, but, well, that's the thing. Like, so in art class, skillfulness, and particularly when I got to college, uh, I remember like, you know, I remember a self-portrait I did in college where I stayed up, like did an all-nighter, which, you know, in college you feel like, oh, this is going to be the best thing ever. I did an all-night. I stayed oh, yeah. up all night on this drawing. <laughs> like, I'm going to blow everybody away. <laughs> and I had my hood on, and it's really like, <laughs> I look pretty yeah. fucking badass. <laughs> and so I go in with this drawing and work my ass off on it. It's, I'm sure it wasn't very good, but like it, it definitely, and 
most of the kids in that class had like, you know, 10 minutes before class, like scrawled some stick figure and the teacher was going around, you put everything up and she's critiquing everything. And she's like, there's so much like honesty and, and, you know, in somebody's oh, stupid I stick hate, figure. I hate it. Yes, yeah, so those critiques like, were like so the... many beautiful moments. And, <laughs> and then she gets to mine. She's like, it's slick. And I was just like, what? she said, it's what? It's slick. Slick? Uh. Yeah. Which I'm sure it, it probably was. Like, I was probably, like, blending all the shit. And it probably uh. looked a little plasticky. But, like, on the other hand, if she couldn't see that I was, like, desperately Actually trying an to effort. do something. Uh. Uh-huh. And, but, you know, whatever. So, uh, like, I, I, and it was, I used to, like, walk out on those college critiques because I was like, you know what? This is, like, life is short. Um, I mean, as a teen, as an 18-year-old, I felt like I had a lot more like i don't know whatever guts and like like i feel like right now i spend so much time trying to please people back then i didn't care so much about that but i remember like you know like like we'd have like we had some visiting artists who basically plastered the entire gallery with yellow manila envelopes like ceiling floor and walls and that Mm -hmm. was installation project and she was talking about it and i was like you know what like and i was looking at the clock and i was like there's no way that was only five minutes it's pretending to be five (laughs) minutes but it was really like two hours that's what it felt like and then i was like you know life is so short and we're all gonna die and what happens if i just walk out of here right now and go to my studio and try to paint something it would have been awesome if on your way out you said life is short and we're all going to die. <laughs> or Lexi. <laughs> just walked out. No, Lexi. and I mean, I didn't do that. Yeah, I just kind of like stood up and walked out and nothing happened. Like, like nothing, you know, like, like, like life just went on and I got to do something else. And after that, anytime I felt like something was like a huge waste of my time, I just wouldn't stay there anymore. Like, I, I felt like this, this place was actively like sucking out That's, my life. I think a really important thing just in life. There was a great um, graduation speech that David Foster Wallace gave. I, I, oh, this I, is I, water. Yeah, th- that's like one one of so if anyone hasn't heard that you should probably turn this off right now and go just listen pause to, it pause and, it and, and, listen, and, and listen to this is water which is one of like the most inspiring things it's I've so ever good and he it's, did it's about himself exactly that. shortly after this <laughs> um he did and it's very unfortunate because he keeps saying and if you don't do this eventually you just go blow your brains out and then he you know killed himself a little after that but it's so good. So, uh, yeah, like, so the reason I'm really on this podcast is because Marshall wanted someone to talk about Infinite Jest too. Oh, yeah. To talk uh, about David Foster yeah, Wallace, sure. too. And there's just, you know, like two candidates Dude, in New York. I have similar book taste. Yeah. <laughs> yeah but, but yeah, now that you brought up David Foster Wallace, can we just talk about him for the rest? <laughs> <laughs> um, but I, 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 so from what, it, like, the part of this is water you're thinking about is when he's saying that, like, you have to find meaning All in the All of these, quote, like, you're surrounded doing your like daily shit surrounded by all these like stupid people there's a part of you that just wants to like hate them all and like succumb to like anger and rage and hate your life and then there's another part of you that can just you're alive you're breathing and you know there's probably this person who's in front of me has a life too and it's probably interesting like way more interesting than i could imagine there's that moment that there's that word sonder that is the moment you realize that the person you're next to's life is as infinitely complex as yours. And it's like, there's a word for it. that's like really beautiful. And then you think like, 
you know, I think in a way it does seem like humanity is a little absurd and ridiculous, but on an individual level, there's something beautiful about everyone. Yeah, they're amazing. We're talking about earlier, there's so many people who are so good right now. Like, why should the gallery space be dominated by, like, I don't know, neon neon light art or whatever? Or manila folders, like, tactile, like... Um, or, or uh, did, did I, uh, were we talking about the sperm show on this podcast already? We talk about no. the sperm show. Uh, we talked about it a couple of times, I think. Uh, all, all right, or, or sperm. Yeah. Or sperm. Uh, yeah. There was there was a show at uh, Metro Pictures that was actually called Sperm, and it was uh, just sperm. Um, From one their, person or multiple? No. Um, so so the thing with sperm is that it's transparent when it dries, so there wasn't really like it was just like labels saying like. Sperm of a whale, sperm of a fourteen-year-old boy. I bet you it's just all met medium. Like nobody checks this shit. I feel like whoever is doing that show, sperm of a fourteen-year-old boy, you should probably be getting in trouble. Yeah, for sure. Crosses some lines. There, I, yeah, I, I have to take issue with. But I mean, there's some animal sperm and there's some human sperm. I don't know if it was actually there, or it might have been Matt Medium. Uh, what does sperm look like? It's it's all transparent media. when it dries. Yeah, it all looks like matte medium. How do you know that they're not using matte medium? Exactly. Well, Nobody's the, checking. Um, I mean, I bet le- you this guy I mean, did honestly, that. Honestly, the show was so boring. What to does look at the, whale like, sperm, the least he could have done with sperm whale sperm? Wait, sperm whale whale sperm look like? <laughs> so one of the most like the people who I talk to at the beach, who I get the most from, is uh, a lifeguard who is a lifeguard in the summer and he's a teacher, public school teacher during the year. And he's a physics teacher Mm. and he's really into the physics of waves. And so he and I have like, we just go out and body surf and and talk about waves. And one day he was like, the water was really frothy. And I was like, what, what's the deal? Like, why is it like salinity? Like why, why is it some days like that the foam like holds? And he was like, that's whale sperm. And I still to this day, I'm not sure if he was joking or not. (laughs) And so I see that and I'm always like, is it? I don't know. Like, is it gross? Do I really want to go in? Like, I don't know. It could not be. It could be. I guess it could could be. be, Because then I saw, yeah, there was some, uh, I was reading about, I think maybe some kind of sardine that, only spawns in a certain beach in some remote, like one of these islands that nobody ever goes to. And I think from like a helicopter above, you can see the sardine sperm like on the beach. Like it, it, it's so much of it that wow. it actually accumulates on the beach. And it's, I think it's like foam. So horny sardines. maybe he was right about the whale sperm. I don't know. <laughs> well, you will never think about the beach the same way again. And neither will anyone Next time you swallow a mouthful of... So <laughs> after, after you get uh, this education, then what, what does it look like for you? Are you trying to get in the gallery? Are you lost for a little while? Are you just... You know, you have some friends in this world and... I'm starting to feel like I do live a privileged life. Like, I I just <laughs> dumb-locked my way into galleries. Like, I, um... Uh, Jacob had been showing with a gallery out in San Francisco called the John Pence Gallery. Uh-huh. And John came to, um, visit he Water Street. He picked up a lot of those guys. He did, yeah. 
Well, no, he was really selective. And, <laughs> <laughs> um, no, 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 he'd take only, anybody. Only the best ones. <laughs> Shut up. He wouldn't take No, no, I remember. <laughs> um, he came by and there was a writer, uh, Reynolds Price. You ever read Reynolds Price? He's a good writer. Um, he, Jacob was doing a portrait of him and he was also a collector, but he was a very acclaimed writer. And I had done a copy at the Met of a Velasquez painting, and I just had it leaning on a shelf at Water Street. And he saw that, and he was like, could I buy that from you? And I was like, it's not really mine. It's a copy. And he was like, yeah, no, no, I know what it is. Like, I, And that was the first painting I ever sold. Hmm. And he had wow. been, up until that point, he had been really collecting his paintings primarily from John Pence. And when he told Pence that he had bought this painting from me, Pence was like, huh, who is this guy? And so then Pence, like, right away, he's like, I'll give you a show. And I, like, I was still studying, at, I was still actually working in animation at the time, and I, I was, uh, just didn't feel ready. And so I, I told him I didn't feel ready, and I moved to Italy, and then some stuff happened, and I came back, and I was just at a point in my life where I was, like, ready to just start life. Like, I, I felt like I couldn't wait anymore. Mm-hmm. And so I called John up and I was like, Hey, I'm ready to take you up on that show. And so a year later I had a show with him. That's Um, awesome. And I didn't have a studio at the time. I was actually living with my father at the time on the Upper East Side. Mm. Um, and I was painting at water street and Jacob was like super just like supportive and accommodating. Like, sure. Why don't you take a space here? Just work here. And so I did. And it was like, actually, one of my first big paintings was like, I was in, we had a sculpture room and uh, I found this like old sculpture that Jacob had done. He's a really good sculptor. And it was like cracked and and coming apart. And it, it was, I thought it was incredibly beautiful and it just sort of half unwrapped. So I just set it up and painted that. And uh, that was like my first big sale hmm. uh, painting. Awesome. Um, and I had no idea what I was going to paint. So I was painting. I mean, the thing that up until then interested me most was painting people just because of that, like, living engagement. Like, I, but still I've seemed to be the things that sold most. Uh, so I painted, like, a good amount of still lives. And, and I could get, like, like, I'm super into cooking. And so, like, if it related to, like, food, I could paint still lives. Uh, and I could look at like Sarah Lamb's paintings, still life paintings and be like, well, fuck, I want to do that. Uh-huh. Uh, and, and so I was doing a lot of those kinds of paintings, but I was kind of, I wasn't, I was just doing a whole lot of bunch of different things and just enjoying painting and like learning so much about painting at the time. Let's see. My first solo show was 2002. I don't think I tried to paint the ocean until 2006 okay so i had done i guess that would have been my like my third show with pence where because i was showing with him every other year after that first show i just tried this thing kind of had an idea and it just became an obsession do you still struggle with i mean a lot of our listeners right now will be like like where you were or what's the point in this you know because Endless days in the studio applying paint can feel a little self-indulgent. You know, do you, do you have I think moments every day, now? 
it's I mean it's still like it's it's hard every day you uh-huh. go in and you're like what could I possibly say that would be worth anything like I, I think I don't know I find that every mm-hmm. day and if I can find some meaning in it that's great and even Vincent only... on our show is saying that's his biggest struggle is finding meaning in it you know like it's a tough thing to do when you're not a doctor or a firefighter you're not actively saving lives you're just isolated doing a thing putting it out in the world and hoping it has some value yeah for the record i think men actually have like kind of like more trouble with this i think with with women or at least like my life most of the time is so specific it's like i don't know like like i do someone needs to get fed someone needs to get like clean someone whatever mm-hmm. that like I, I almost never struggle with meaning i'm just sort of like i'm convinced <laughs> that like i'm not just who knows if my work is any good um, I'm, I'm hoping it is, but I never go in. That, like for me, like just getting to do anything, but that's feel, the, like feel there's so much pleasure in it. <laughs> but that's like the that's reason true. people yeah. have kids, right? Like it's built-in meaning. It's sort of so curbs an existential question. That's right. It's like uh, I think that I mean historically, that's a reason people have kids. You know, like denial of death is like it's like you can have kids, you can make something, you can. We're all looking to pass something through. I think the reason people have kids is because nobody sense. tells you how shitty that person <laughs> <Yeah>. is. <laughs> because nobody would have kids. See, I it's feel like that's be, been very communicated I was talking to, to That's uh, why I'm terrified. I was talking to a friend of mine, and her dad was a pediatric pediatrician. And she grew up hearing all the stories from him, all the technical and all the you know horror stories. So... Now she's because she knows everything that's involved. She's not gonna have kids. She's not gonna have kids. But I think a lot of just artists in New York specifically that I talk to don't, and I kind of understand why they wouldn't uh, have kids. Yeah, yeah. I mean, like I feel like most of my friends here just like don't really want kids, and I totally get it. <laughs> like, yeah. I mean, like I I love my child. I you know love my stepkids. Whatever. I'll hope I'll love the next one. Mm-hmm. But like um, but but I totally understand like the choice not to do it. Uh-huh. Be just because your life, once you have kids, can kind of only go in one direction, at least for a long time. Whereas, like, if you don't, it can still kind of at any point have infinite potential. <laughs> the Suggested Donation podcast actually started as a... A way to get away from your kids for a night, because I totally understand that. <laughs> it was a pitch for a TV show um, that I worked up with. Uh, a parent of my older son's best friend who's mm. like a really accomplished documentary filmmaker he's been nominated for an academy award like he's a really great filmmaker and uh we were just hanging out and i was telling him a little bit about i don't know my view on art and i had this idea for like a art based tv show and he was like huh that's actually it's a good idea i'd like to work on that with you if you want and so we like developed this whole pitch and put it together and we went to i think the the right production company for it and pitched it to them and they came back with like it's a great idea there's no way we can sell this because it's not a competition and there aren't stakes involved and Mm -hmm. you know it like they're like that's just what they're buying right now so it's a great idea but it's not going to get on tv Uh and uh so then he'd gone to some conference somewhere and it was about like, I think they were calling it transmedia at the time, like kind of 
things that were interactive between like TV and like internet and I don't know, something else. And he was like, you should really think about like pitching it to like Google or something like that. And then from there, it kind of developed into a podcast. Hmm. And Tony and I initially were going to be, you know, hosting this TV show and then it just moved over to... You went from a TV show to Google and then to a podcast. We never actually... <laughs> we I did... I I pitched it to somebody like way too senior at Google and and I didn't know what I was doing. Well, your podcast... Actually, um, yeah. Like, let's, let's talk about that because like... But like, yeah, other than painting, you do this thing and you do it really, really well. And you apparently do it well we enough don't. to distract people like me who are trying to. We do it well enough you. to get lots of hate mail. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. talk, talk a little bit talk about, about that hate because mail. that'll make us feel we, better we for getting our, our hate mail. We had our first one or two after Dina joined, <laughs> after, <yeah. laughs> and uh, we were pretty stoked about it. And um, when did you start getting yours, and what are they complaining about? But but, but I feel like you're just so, like I mean, you must get a lot of really positive feedback. We too. do. No, no, no it's yeah. true. Like, but, but some. But some has the positive stuff. I always feel like, oh, people are just writing this because they like, I know, want us to feel good. And the negative stuff, I like, I'm like, like, like someone had to like have felt so strongly about it's that. It's such a bad thing, but it's so much like people write negative reviews much more readily than positive reviews. And I think that like the internet is for whatever reason conducive to that. Like if you go to a restaurant and you have a bad experience, you're definitely giving it one star on Yelp. If you go to a restaurant and you have a really good dinner, you're probably not going to waste time going, yeah, like, on like Yelp. going on Yelp. Yeah. But like, uh, yeah. it's a way to work through your anger. And so that's what the internet is in a lot of ways, is like a way to just work through your anger. And so people are, you know, if they listen to your podcast and they get pissed off for some reason, and maybe it has nothing to do with your podcast, then they just, they're going to write a negative review. <laughs> I mean, fortunately, most people don't write for whatever reason on the iTunes thing. People don't tend to write really. Ne- there were like a couple, but not many. Um, yeah, but but I feel like one of the things that you said earlier is that you could probably one of the reasons you do this is to kind of provide a platform for type of art that doesn't have much of a voice right now. Yeah, could you talk a bit about that? Well, I mean, increasingly, like increasingly, I think it. It has a voice on like social media and these kind of like groups where people are kind of clustering, kind of like-minded people are clustering. But it's it's also like, um, obviously, I think a lot of people are talking about the polarizing effect that it has on our culture. And I think those gatekeepers who maybe we all kind of resent and we like to think of as obsolete really aren't obsolete because there still are those vehicles for kind of a wider conversation and Mm. i think podcasts offer that to some degree like i think people for whatever reason maybe are willing to listen to i mean like i love cooking too and so we had uh, a couple chefs on and i think that like being able to have the conversation that we're having about art but have it with a chef who thinks exactly the same way we do about Mm -hmm. his three restaurants and like how to cook food with love and how every part of the process is like, like we're all having the same conversation. And I think it's a broader conversation than our marginalized little corner of the art world except with mm-hmm. cooking no one would ever say like i want a de-skilled cook to cook my meal or art, <laughs> yeah. People say that. yeah right well that's <laughs> i mean let's talk about and, the splatter on and, the plate 
it, right. If they do splatter plates, they do it super carefully. And I, I think you would never, like, you would never go to a basketball game and watch a whole bunch of people who aren't formally trained in basketball, yeah. <laughs> you know? But to the same, I mean, Anthony Bourdain will say the best meal you'll ever have is Kraft macaroni and cheese. You know, like, there is, like, food has wide. No, no, no. He was full of shit when he said that. <laughs> no, like, he will say, I think... Bourdain was great. I love Bourdain. He said it on Mark Maron's podcast. He was like, you can't beat a macaroni and cheese, a craft macaroni and cheese. You can beat it. You go to like <laughs> yeah. some Mar- grandmother Mar- in Italy and sit down at her table and it beats macaroni and cheese. Uh, and well, it's because she's doing it like, you know, for the past 30 years and like does it with love. And that's uh-huh. like, that's going to be at any restaurant, I think. I wanted. I, I I did like that kind of pocket we were in a little bit about like motivation. What what keeps you up at night? There is a there is a we all artists struggle with motivation. What what makes you scared us when you get into the studio? Is it will I have that idea again? Am I losing my skills? Am I as sharp as I used to be? Like what keeps you up? The thing with the paintings that I'm doing, like these ocean paintings, is that I'm they're they're entirely invented and i have a bunch of sketches that i look at for different parts but mainly the sketches kind of inform my sense of the anatomy of the waves and then Mm -hmm. i'm designing them on the bigger canvases in the studio and if i paint a still life and i set it up the answers are in front of me and it's like if it takes me 10 years i'll i'll find them Mm -hmm. you know maybe i have a deadline and that'll keep me up but like the answers are in front of me, but with these paintings that I'm doing with all the ocean paintings, there are no answers in front. Like they all have to come from within me. And I think, I mean, very frequently recently, I like wake up drenched in sweat, like panicked, like I don't have the answer. Like, I don't know how this area resolves. I don't know how, like right now, I try to, for a really big painting, I just try and like work it out beforehand and have it all as much plotted out as I possibly can. And I have a very systemized way of, because when you're working on that big of a scale, like to mix up color, like it's got to be consistent from, you know, across a span of 12 So feet. you're pre-mixing the colors? I'm pre-mixing the colors based on studies and I'm mixing, I learned kind of from Graydon Parrish. Do you guys know him? I know. Right. Actually, I would correspond on Facebook. I've never actually met him. He's a great guy. Um, he and and like super thoughtful and talented. And he came across this Munzel color system, which mm. is like this book of that. color chips. Yeah, yeah. And it's basically it's a way of naming colors, right? And <laughs> I I went with Travis for a while. We were going down like a really nerdy rabbit, actually maybe with Dalvanian, uh, nerdy rabbit holes of like Munzel color chip jokes, which like <laughs> never should That's be repeated <laughs> to anybody, but like someday maybe. Um, anyway, uh, they have a special podcast for that. <laughs> that will be a very niche podcast. <laughs> um, but, uh, anyway, uh, so th- this book, like it, it has, color chips that are basically any color that's makeable with dye paint or ink or is represented in these books and there are big gaps between the colors but so I, I put the chips on the studies so like for the sky for the clouds I'll 
you know, go from left to right on the sky and, and match, you know, a dozen chips to this tiny little sky. And then I mix up big batches of color and that's a good way to get the sky, like a first pass done on the sky. Okay. And there's something slightly mechanical to me about the results that I get with it. So then I generally have to go back in and, and paint with an open palette, but to get some consistency and, and some of the big relationships down on the on the canvas, I use the, the Munzel. Uh, and so I try and plot as much out as possible. So I try and have like a pretty finished color study. I try and figure out the composition and have like a drawing, a, a finished kind of slightly smaller painting that's going to be the, the big painting. Mm-hmm. Um, but I just didn't have time for everything for this painting. And so the smaller version painting had the composition mostly worked out except for foreground and the color wasn't right on that painting. So I was picking off these sketches and the sky from this one and this way from this one. And, uh, and it got me started and it's good, but the foreground has always been a question mark. And so that has been like waking me and it's, it's, the foreground is really big and like today i was actually like i wonder if i could just cut the crop it <laughs> or but i glued the canvas to panels so at this point that's that's a, um but anyway some it's, it's not permanent i i feel like i've resolved things that way sometimes um or just like, cutting you know, it uh yeah yeah whereas like i i can't solve this part but um there's like some sort of like you know wood chop and, and near the studio and uh well, you can just chop off that part so i spent most of july on the beach and that was that foreground i knew that that was before I, I knew that that was the thing that I needed to figure out. And so I, I did a lot of studies and, and I, I kind of had what I thought was a resolution for it. And I just haven't figured it out on the big painting. But that, like, figuring out what has no answer, except for within me, like, that's the thing that wakes me up in the middle of the night. Solving the problem. Do you think problem, that, um, yeah, philosophically, not a lot of people do that? To be left alone with your own thoughts, with, with not much external input, and just you trying to figure out a certain thing that has no answer, except something that's inside you. And I think a lot of painters, or at least creatives, go through this. And we're familiar with it, but I don't think a lot of people... Well, it's like waiting for a spark, right? Like, I mean, it's, it's in some way, it's like waiting for inspiration, right? Like... Mm-hmm. I mean, I don't think that the answer is just to like sit and stare until like a spark ignites. I think it's like I don't believe in inspiration. No, I I feel like it's such a small like I I know the feeling that everyone. (laughs) Now I sound like a row. I don't believe in inspiration, but 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 I feel everything Dina makes there is no inspiration. (laughs) (laughs) I don't believe in waiting for it. Actually, I believe in like you do stuff, and sometimes you are so into it and you love it, and it feels like most important thing in the world and sometimes like like you just do it and you don't feel all that much but you do it anyway because you know that if you stop do- I, I feel like like the only bad thing you can do is stop doing it yes yeah if you do it for long enough it uses the spark will come and then it'll go again well also yeah. and, and 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 through failing you know you're at least by process of elimination ruling out things that don't work and mm-hmm. that's Science. driving you closer to you know where you want to be and but, so i like it takes me uh, two to three days to put down one pass on the foreground. And 
now I've spent six days on it. And I, I feel like my time is limited, which is also added pressure. But I know I've done it twice now. And both times, the things that I did didn't totally work. But I, I learned from them. And parts of them did work. So there are parts that I'm keeping. And I'm getting closer to it. But paint also, like, like I feel like some professor maybe told me this, like, paint loves paint. Yeah, So each true. each layer... Just well, Vincent like loves that, so, like, yeah. 80 layer Titian quote of 80 glazes. <laughs> um, yeah, yeah, and like, like, like the, um, but I feel like with each layer, it's just like paint does what you want a little bit better. Like, I'm not an a la prima, I was never an a la prima painter, like, I don't know how to do that. Uh-huh. Um, but, like, you know, so, like, like the way paint is, mul- you know, multiple layers, which is presumably the way that you do it, and I feel like each layer just, like, the paint works better. The brush did, does what it wants. Like and and like I'm not sure if it almost feels magical, but like the first layer always looks like crap, and then the next <laughs> one looks a little bit less like crap, and the yeah. and it's just like and it feels like it's not even me. It's the paint kind of doing it by itself. That's the best feeling when it feels uh, like that. It doesn't always feel no, like that. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I think for, for some people, for Stephen Assel, I bet it always feels like that though. He definitely like he tries to. I think throw wrenches in it because I think he's uncomfortable with it when it's with how comfortable. Good it was how good uh-huh. he is. He's kind of bored no, I think it's just if it's if it's comfortable, I think it's like he's not challenging himself. Exactly. Uh-huh. And so I think he throws wrenches and I mean that's that was my takeaway when, when we were talking to him. He, he was on our podcast and it was he he just he he said like one day he just decided to like just fling paint at the. That's, that's um, exactly what he said when I was a student. Same thing he says. I like to throw wrenches and these colors don't matter. I much. mean, like yeah, I've, I've seen him do that. Yeah. I've seen him throw like a huge glob of cadmium from like I don't know yeah. three feet away, and then it'll land and make like the perfect forehead or something. <laughs> and then I'd go to my studio and try it, and it would look like a blob you can yeah, always it's hilarious you can always spot one of his students because yeah. they all try to paint like <laughs> exactly this. Oh my God. it's all totally like non-replicable I've seen a few you people kind of. That I've seen a few people do like an okay job replicating it, but you it's can't. never as good. And no, like, no. and then there's a lot of people because like it, me that did like a really uh, bad job. Yeah, because you, they're kind of missing the whole point, right? Like he it's went through knowledge. this. You, it doesn't matter. You could paint with a stick. You just gotta yeah. know it. It doesn't matter. Um, but Ted, to that point, do you, do you feel any freedom in the way that you're working? I there's something about the way you're describing it. I can feel the fear, but then on another level, I'm like, boy, but that's really free to just rather than the still life on the table, be like, well, that grapes rotated a, a quarter different than I have it rotated. So I'll change <laughs> it. And you're just sort of like, look at that. I can paint whatever foreground in this I want to out of my head. Yeah, no, I mean, that's that's part of why I love it. It's uh-huh. like it, it is incredibly liberating. And it's it's a connection to like when you're a little kid and you're just drawing and, you know, whatever you're if it's like a battle scene or whatever it is like you're you're just immersed in this world that's of your own creation in a way would you say it sort of feeds back to like an abstract expressionist too like you're definitely dealing with forms but you're making decisions on the fly i mean i like i wouldn't say that i am heavily influenced by abstract expressionism but there is undeniably like an incredibly abstract quality to me just covering a canvas uh-huh. purely like with 
some sort of emotional drive. Like it's, uh-huh. it's, it's, it's just incredibly just free and it's just, you know, there's no, there's no plan. It's, it's kind of, there is some like it's so exciting actually i could is. i could feel i could have a lot of fun in that i mean my paintings rely a lot on imagination but i'm still very much trying to get fairly concrete not as liquid pardon the pun elements as you're <laughs> dealing with you know what i'm saying <laughs> maybe that's why i keep going back to it it's just this like for me, it's this incredible place where I get to like, and, and the paintings can represent anything, and and they they represent a lot of different things to me. I mean, I think you know, and and you listen to different things when you're painting, and you get influenced by just different kinds of ideas. Mm-hmm. So I know you said uh, you don't really know why you're attracted to painting the ocean, but do do you feel a certain pull towards the ocean? Sort of this uh, primal pull back to yeah, you know, I mean, where we all started. I think so. Yeah, that's. I, I mean, like the primordial ooze. Is that what you're asking him? Like you want to climb? Uh, or the pull of the moon on the way. <laughs> well, there but was no, something. Like, I mean, like literally it, started. Yeah, before there was life on Earth, there were those waves looked exactly the same as they do to me, and like yeah. there is this. I've always been into the idea of like paintings having like a timelessness, and that like I would never want to paint somebody with a haircut that I feel like is particularly now because 10 years from now I'll be like god that painting is so like 2018 you know Uh like like if I'm painting a person connecting just to the person like to their eyes to their expression to Mm -hmm. something that and and I think with the ocean there's just it's it's like this vast thing that like it is the reason we're here it's what we look for when we're looking for life on other planets. I mean, it like it's the very, the painting that I'm working on is called the foundation mm. because that's, I mean, it is the foundation. Mm. That it and is. then, you know, we've got this weird relationship with it. And I, I've been actually thinking a lot about different painters and their relationships with the ocean. Cause I mean, I think there were Dutch painters who were painting the sea maybe before Turner, but Turner's the first person that I really think of as, you know, taking on the ocean as like Mm. seascapes and Mm. you think about the relationship that people had to the ocean at that time it was like on the one hand this you know they were exploring you know sailing around the world and people were able to travel to to different places on on sailboats but it was also really perilous like people would go out and die totally shipwrecks and and I think a lot of his paintings are about the human relationship to the ocean. And then you get to like the American painters, maybe not so much Winslow Homer, but like William Charles Richards. It's almost like propaganda for America. Like our liquid borders secured our country. Like you can't invade the U.S. So while Europe is fighting it out, while Napoleon's like invading everything, the U.S. is safe because of that ocean. And at the time also, I think we had like an incredibly powerful navy yeah and you know there was this like pride in the ocean and that like distant sailboat represented the our naval power hmm. that's and a really interesting way of looking now at it. like in new york or like on the east coast you have sea level rising and 
we're having to deal with like houses getting washed away and people getting you know dying and like it's a whole new relationship with the ocean and it's it's kind of starting to turn back towards this like dangerous relationship with the ocean and i think one of the things that i find so captivating about turner's paintings is that they're both like simultaneously beautiful and terrifying yeah mm-hmm. like 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 he, he doesn't mm-hmm. like painting calm seas like that's no. not a turner painting. but he like, did and, paint calm seas too and when he did there's still something like slightly yeah, like, like un- unsettling about it or ominous yeah. Yeah. yeah like so where do you i mean just both yourself and i feel like all of us kind of have a similar version of where we want the art, the art world, the kind of art world we want to exist in. Like, like what's what's yours? Like, I, f- I feel like it's similar to ours, but I don't want to. Yeah. yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm sure it is. I don't know. Like, I, I just it's like, I, like I want to live in an art world where like you're super successful for one. But, but uh, <laughs> yeah, totally. I want to. You know what? I would love with the students at the at the Grand Central. Like, I, I every year I, I meet like a bunch of students who I think are amazing and I want there to be a place for them to to like survive and exist and thrive and I I want the support systems to be there I've been thinking a lot about like just how we make art and how we support ourselves and how you know how we like live our lives as artists and I would love to see a world where there was I don't know if it's public patronage or if it's just private patrons, but I would love to see a world where there are patrons like who would go regularly go and visit the GCA and look at the students there. And if one of them is like a Colleen would say, you're amazing. You're incredibly talented. I I want you to do something huge and I want you to spend a year on it, and I want you to not worry about a thing, but work your ass off for that year. If it, if you need babysitters, if you need like to rent a bigger studio, if you need any materials, you got it. But I want to see what is the the best, biggest, most ambitious thing that you could possibly do. I want there to be people like that to support people who I think we all admire and yeah, all I of think us. there are people like that. They, they just aren't supporting like the people that we know right now. They're well, but you know, I, else. I mean, the art market itself is like, it's a whole other thing. Like it's, it's there, there was a guy, I mention his name all the time and I'm not going to do it right now, but he, he was a, a, a hedge fund guy and his, his huge hedge fund, very successful. And they got caught insider trading and actually a friend of mine who was a prosecutor prosecuted him and he wasn't allowed the sec took his license away and he wasn't allowed to they, they took his hedge fund away from him right and he actually found didn't end run around them and now he's back but in the meantime he he was only allowed to trade on his own account so he kept all his employees and he he had ton, billions of dollars and he was trading on his account but he was banned for insider trading for cheating from the financial markets and from his hedge fund. So what did he do? He went to the art market and he became one of the biggest collectors. And there's no insider trading in the art market. You're it's legal. Mm-hmm. Anything you want to do, like join the it's board of a museum. So deregulated, right? Yeah. <laughs> you can join the board of a museum. You can put the gallerist that you're buying from, give him a seat on the board. And you guys can put on a show there or have that museum. You could 
encourage the curators. It's it's not exactly a quid pro quo, but really it is. Yeah, you can have them put on a show and. With it's late Warhol, you and you've be. been collecting late Warhol, and late Warhol you think is undervalued, and and then you could probably encourage a critic to write a really serious review about that show, or not, which it's would a drive Momo. The... Like, what the yeah. fuck are they going to not write about it? Like, of course <laughs> they're going to write about it, and so then your your the value of your collection goes up, and you can you can sell them slowly and secretly through your dealer because. There's no transparency in the in the art world. So like it's a market. That's the, the this best. whole thing is it's a market and it's got nothing to do with the art. No. And it's it's got uh to do with like name brands. Yeah. And Warhol's a name brand, Basquiat's a name brand now and you know But don't you think too like it has to do with the the tameness like a portrait that conveys a certain level of psychology and humanity, like one that stops you in your tracks, mm-hmm. at, like the Rembrandt. Right. Don't you think that some big investor who's throwing parties, who just wants to show that they're on the inside, would rather hang something a little more innocuous, like dots? So there, you're not like hanging... You're any neuroses. Well, there's nothing distasteful um, there. Well, and also there's, but, but it's like, also, I feel like they're also being told that the dots are like the, the way to go. Yeah. But the like, dots are also a viable alternative that doesn't challenge you. And like, yeah. I it, think that's so it, true. It, it, that it doesn't, that goes back to the original conversation about why do more people watch Transformers than Fellini movies? Because we don't want that stuff in our lives. And I think in a way you're, this a vision of great art being out of out of the small studios that we're doing it in is a little bit against humanity right like it's a it's something we're not interested in as a whole well okay well think of it from the perspective of running a business right if you're running a business there there's the product and there's actual you want part. to catch as many flies as you can well the product. thing is like you have the business right so the, uh, it's two separate things the product is separate from running the business but but i but i think there's still there's still there's enough people that would connect to connect to this kind of more human stuff and connect to the harder stuff etc it's just that like i mean but but there are it's just that like it's just that right now the, the moment the, the moment don't. The, the moment that we're in, kind of the like the critics and the people on the boards of the museums are saying, "This is this is real art. This is what you should invest in, etc." I think if like we controlled some of these seats, like we as in like our general world, like like I don't mind the corruption. I mind that it's like it, the game is rigged, not in our favor. Like <laughs> you know, <laughs> that, like, like I think, but I mean, I, like increasingly, I am fi- like I'm finding that. Uh, for the past, this is my first show in, in a while, and it's because I haven't had to work with a gallery because people have been coming to me and just commissioning paintings from me directly. And basically, most of the commissions have been paint whatever you want, and here's the size, and here's the budget. Mm-hmm. And that's like an ideal scenario for me, and I just want that for more people. And I would also want to feel secure that, like, it's not, I mean, painting, selling art feels like a hustle always. Mm-hmm. Like you just don't know what's coming up next time. But like, I don't care about what art world exists and I don't care about what art market exists as long as there's a big enough 
network of support for the stuff that I value, I, I'd be totally happy. But to be truthful, like the art world that I would want to see is like the biennial filled up with, you know, trees and, you know, Michael Grimaldi drawings and like that mm-hmm. would be a biennial I would go to. And the think, Venice, yeah. you know, like having, you know, Jacob go and, and do like some 20 foot painting and, and send it to, to Venice to represent the U.S. Like that would be to that me, would that would be, be exciting. That's mm-hmm. actually uh, I don't know yeah, if you sure. are familiar with the, uh, the PS1 show uh, a couple of months back. There was a couple of rooms just full of these uh, really uh, nice landscape paintings. Oh, really? I've never no. seen that. Really? Because I was just a PS1 with my toddler because that's like what you do with toddlers. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Now and it's it was, full oh my God. of the Asian uh, um, naked men uh, doing uh, things to nature. I don't know. Is it, is it shows that I... Is it, the shows that I saw was so boring. That, like even even the kids thought it was boring, and yeah. he's not even three. Like yeah, yeah, like yeah. he said, he doesn't like that museum no, very no, much. Like, <laughs> you I, you missed this one because but this one was actually good. I was very surprised that that was like three or four rooms just full of landscape paintings, like good landscape paintings. I'd, um, I'd like to see that. They weren't. They were simplified landscape paintings, but like not bad I just landscape think paintings. You do, so. you do what you do. With the most integrity you can, and you will find your audience. But I don't know if that audience should necessarily be huge. I think it, at some point it flips, and and you just want a nice little pocket for your work. I think, well, here's the thing, though. There are a lot of artists that I admire tremendously, and I would love to see them pushing themselves, and I would love to see them get pushed to do more ambitious things than I think they're doing. Mm-hmm. And and I, I particularly see this with like people who I've taught who I, I just I see this potential in some some, you know, so many students that I've worked with. I know what they're capable of and it's like mind blowing. And I just want them to do that. And I want there to be enough support not just so that they are like comfortable and can survive or that they get to like paint ahead and you know be really happy and do do a great job with it and maybe it is totally arresting and maybe that like for jordan i think maybe that's like he does that so beautifully it's it's more ambitious than anything i could dream up but i think there are other people who I see something totally different and maybe that's just me. Maybe that's not even them and maybe they would never want to do that, but Mm -hmm. maybe I'm imposing some idea on them or some vision that I think is possible. But like, I would love to see the kind of support and I don't see it for, for these kind of young ambitious people in their twenties to like, while they can spend like all day and all night doing all nighters for like two years to do like their last supper or whatever. Like mm-hmm. I would love to see that. And I think it would be incredible. And I think it would, you know, I think it there, you know, that term, uh, tronies or tronies, you know, no. that it's like old Dutch word about like the, 
there was ambitious painters, but then they would do shows where it's just them painting heads, you know? Mm-hmm. But those were called tronies that were just a, a B-side to what you're doing. Oh, that's cool. And I do like that system because it is – there is something strange about – the the glorification of just a head painting that I do think doesn't quite impress people on the scale of a big work. And it's still very important and valid, but I do like the place of a Trani for it, you know? I, I, I love those, but like... Yeah, I don't know. I like like Jericho's, like, you know, severed head paintings are kind of cool and creepy and weird, but like... If he never painted the Raft of Medusa, you would never look at them. But that right. painting is so insane. The so, Raft of Medusa sure. is like, how, how the hell did that thing even happen? Uh-huh. Yeah, it's incredible. For sure. He used to apparently raid the morgues and yeah. like, like basically bring home like like. That's what I want for some of my yeah. students. I yeah, want like, them like, to you, raid you, morgues. Like, <laughs> oh, well, on the, I, um, I feel like go raid morgues. That's the title for this podcast. Go raid um, morgues. I actually, well, I mean, I won't even have to come up with a actual title. We're just going to use that with, yeah. the, with your permission. <laughs> go raid point. morgues. I want my students to raid morgues. <laughs> uh, God, Edward, thank you so much. For, like you were thank like, you so, did yeah. you call Edward again? Ned yeah. or Nedward? Red. Uh, I, I, um, you were like, like exactly, like you were like just as much fun as I thought you would be. Thank you, Nedward. Ted, this was great. We have a ball. We give you our stamp of approval. Awesome. Well, yeah. you guys got to come over and do a suggested donation podcast. Yeah, sure thing. Totally. It could be anywhere, right? Yeah, because the, apparently and, and, and it's portable. Maybe, so. We're gonna just come and use your set. We'll yeah, just exactly. use up Albanian's computer. <laughs> yeah. to... um, and then maybe I'll actually get to interview you instead of you doing. <laughs> yeah. yeah, we already did one. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah, yeah maybe this one should be this. Suggested yeah, maybe actually. Can I have the first hour and then? And yeah, I yeah, just, I'll totally. just dub Tony's exactly. voice in. Yeah. <laughs> He's just like, that's great. I agree. <laughs> and what did Bullshit. you do there? <laughs> <laughs> Sounds good. All right. Cut the okay, okay. Thanks a lot for having me, guys. Thanks. It was great. great. Thank you for listening to the Arc Rhyme podcast. Rate and review us on Apple Podcast. Also, we're on Instagram at Arc Rhyme Podcast. You can leave comments on the thread or dm us there we usually see them also facebook we're at art grind podcast you can uh leave comments future questions for our guest and such there our website is www.artgrindpodcast.com definitely go there for the beautiful images that we post of the artist and don't be shy to donate us money so we could buy some really good booze for the guests (laughs) (laughs) thanks everyone Bye. bye